Roger Griffiths here, Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, our regular Friday Hub Roundtable. As I am each and every Friday, joined on this program by Sean Spear, the Editor-at-Large at The Hub. Sean, how do we find you today, the 19th of January, 2024? Better than you, Roger. Uh, the shoes on the other foot. Listeners have grown accustomed to hearing about all my ailments and illnesses and and somehow they've uh via our podcast uh glommed on to you what's going on in the griffiths household oh yeah it doesn't end sean you're in early innings with you know kids <laughs> uh one and two i've got tweens and they still bring stuff home from school trust me this week was one of those uh weeks it uh you know, you talk about man colds and the degree <laughs> of like uh wimpiness here i was I was seriously wimping out Monday, Tuesday, uh, a little bit better now, but if listeners can forgive me for my somewhat froggy uh, voice, uh, that would be appreciated. Well, Sean, I want to um, start the show bigger picture, um, uh, talk about some of the issues we've been covering at the hub since the start of the new year and try to put them through a, maybe a lens to help our listeners and ourselves understand this moment we're in. And then on the back half of the show, um, dip into Davos. What the heck is going on uh, with supposedly this um, elite corporate enclave? Is it still relevant? What's its effects on the broader discourse in a moment of surging populism? Is this kind of, are we already in the post Davos world? Let's get into that in the second half of the show. But I want to start with this other thing is kind of, I don't know, Sean, it's been something I've been thinking about since we got back to our regular publication schedule at the Hub uh, coming out of the holidays. You and uh, Olivio D'Amato have been writing some great stuff, continuing coverage at the Hub on you know Canada's really disappointing economic performance, our declining per capita GDP. Um, we have uh, you know other signs out there that the country has, I don't know what, I, how you characterize it, the symptoms of brokenness that there is an economy that seems broken, there's an immigration system that seems broken, there's healthcare systems that seem broken. Some are saying the education system, especially universities, are increasingly broken post-October 7th. How do you think about this, Sean? Because to me, it's a, it's a powerful lens to kind of focus all these disparate forces and factors that are going on in Canada, brokenness. But at the same time, I worry a bit, Sean, that it it leads, it encourages my own cynicism. It it creates in me at times a sense of kind of, frankly, of like a bit of hopelessness. Like, is this situation retrievable? It is popular, though, this idea of brokenness uh, amongst the center right in Canada and the United States. I would say it is the kind of let motif of our moment. What's your take? Yeah, I, I think that, that that the idea of brokenness finds somewhat salience in Canada because it strikes at the heart of our conception of the economic and social contracts at the root of Canada itself. You know, uh, the United Empire loyalists, uh, you know, effectively made a, a set of of trade offs when they came to Canada. They were trading off the dynamism and the openness to personal freedom uh, available in the United States in exchange for uh, uh, order and stability. Uh, of course, 
best represented in um in our constitutional commitment to peace order and good government that was that trade-off really is at the heart of canada and, and has been at the heart of canada since uh pre-confederation and so i think one of the reasons that the notion of brokenness is his risen to such a level of consciousness is because it 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 in the minds of a lot of people represents a breaking of that economic and social contract if we're not getting order and stability and good government and but we're also not getting the economic dynamism and openness uh, of American society um, that it feels like that set of trade-offs that have been inherent to American to Canadian culture uh, are are manifestly failing and I think there's a whole host of reasons why uh, or, or symptoms of that brokenness metaphor uh you mentioned a, a, a series of institutional breakdowns in the minds of many Canadians I'll turn it to you in a second but I would put um the government itself uh on that list we're speaking on January 19th we woke up this morning to a story from the, the Globe and Mail uh it's based on its ongoing investigation of the CBSA's uh procurement uh of the ArriveCan app uh listeners will know that this is um uh was a huge boondoggle the app was supposed to cost 80 grand it now we now believe it costs as much as 60 million dollars and it's increasingly crossing the threshold from boondoggle uh to to uh possible criminality and i think when you add all of these things up um uh, it's not merely a matter of political rhetoric, Rudyard. I think it does strike at the heart of something deeper in the Canadian psyche and the Canadian promise. And and that's why um, I, I think this notion of brokenness has really come to kind of permeate, permeate our, pop, our, our political culture. Great summary, Sean. I agree with you on all those points. But what's the consequence of succumbing, as I have? I'll be honest, at times over the last, you know, period of the pandemic and then really a sense now coming out of the pandemic that things materially in this country have not improved. Uh, per capita GDP has fallen. We're not going to recover our pre-pandemic per capita GDP until 2027. What's the consequences, Sean, of, I don't know, I worry about like a malaise, a, you know, a feeling that um, the forces mounted against a kind of a more dynamic, um, vibrant, uh, exciting, efficient, effective Canada. I mean, it just seems Pollyannish to talk about those things. It just, what does this do to the the national mood, and and how does it play out in our politics? You know, is, is there a is there a danger here in conservatives reaching too far and too deep into the brokenness meme? The short answer is yes. Um, the genius of Ronald Reagan um, uh, was that he didn't double down on the sense of malaise that was, of course, famously reflected in, in, in Jimmy Carter's um, 1979 speech. He promised a, 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 a renewal. Um, his 84 re-election campaign was called Morning in America. And it, it seems to me um, within a single administration, uh, America had renewed its sense of itself. It had renewed uh, a degree of economic dynamism and it stood down increasingly its major geopolitical foe. Uh, I think that administration needs to be understood as a, a something of an American renaissance. And it, it started in that mentality 
of forward lookingness it, it, it in the mentality of of human agency um a, a kind of against some of the, the the trends that were contributing to this sense of malaise so yeah i think as a matter of of diagnostic um brokenness probably works um but if that's it then you can't just throw your hands up and say this is you know this is the future i think you need to meet it with a kind of proportionate vision and plan and and i i think that there is an onus on conservatives to kind of draw on that um on that reaganite experience how would you respond mm -hmm. to that yeah it's i i we've talked about this before it's like how do you ignite the animal spirits um to quote uh, schiller the economist you know how do you get people um kind of off the proverbial floor where we all feel kind of wiped out and down and depressed. I think you really have to start thinking about some big policies, some big ideas that are going to excite and energize, you know, entrepreneurs and business. Um, you need an incentive system, a new incentive system to you know, drive this type of change. And I, I don't, I think this is a moment for much more radical thinking and ideas, uh, because I do worry that if we tinker around this, if on one hand we, you know, because it's hard not to um, use this lens of brokenness to interpret this moment of Canada, but then we, we only have incremental policies that tweak and yes. adjust and shuffle, you know, pre-existing priorities, programs, objectives. You know, I worry that the former is going to swamp the latter and we're not going to have that ignition event we need like i, I don't know maybe, i wouldn't have said this like five years ago I, maybe it's time for a flat tax in canada i don't know like something really radical that just causes everybody to wake up and suddenly say wow the rules of the game have changed yeah well said um i i, I, I agree i think a, a program of incrementalism in the current moment represents a kind of doubling down on on decadence i used the word proportionate uh in my last comments on, on, on intentionally i do think if if your diagnostic of canada's economy and society is is this notion of brokenness um, then you need to come with a vision and agenda that 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 matches the moment um you you mentioned a flat tax i could put a a, a number of other kind of proportionate ideas on the table i've I've written even uh, in the past few months at the Hub about the prospect of constitutional reform, which of course comes with huge risks and but but possibly huge rewards. But let me put one other idea on the table. Uh, last year, Jenny Roth, one of the Hub's contributors, talked about the need for um, a, a program of national service um, to to uh, try to get at these issues of national unity, social cohesion. Uh, renewed commitment uh, to to a national identity. Uh, that article, I I should say, um, was pretty widely panned. Um, but I would note um, that as we speak, uh, Francois Macron is uh, launching a, a new program of of national service for uh, young French people. I think reflecting, in a sense, the the growing attenuation um, and disorder in a lot of Western society. So you can agree or disagree with that idea. Um, but if you're prepared to argue that Canada is broken, um, then you better come forward with more than tax cuts for or tax credits for left-handed people or, you know, incrementally increasing pre-existing transfer programs to, 
you know, your preferred constituency, that represents a, a kind of a, a further slide into decadence, not the kind of renaissance that that uh, I think increasingly at the hub we think we need. Yeah, let me throw one other idea out there, which is I, you know, and I say this as someone who uh, in different parts of my career was a committed federalist, uh, less so now. I think it might be time for like a radical de-evolutionary agenda where you come in and you effectively say as a new government that there are broad swaths of federal powers that you are going to move to the provinces. You're going to move tax points with them. You're going to radically shrink the federal government. It's the scope of its agencies. The administrative state uh, would be significantly reduced in Canada and you would create a series of competitive jurisdictions that would have responsibility for broad cross-section of what their voters uh, need and and are demanding and that through a more competitive Canada more um, in a sense regionalized Canada where there aren't these constant you know federal programs to even out and bail out underperformance and mediocrity in one jurisdiction to the next you would see people vote with their feet. You would very quickly see, I think, within the space of a generation or less, a sorting out of the winners and losers and a sorting out of the policies and ideas that succeed and those that, that fail. And I think politically, this is something that could fly in this country because I, you know, this, this latest ArriveCan story, massive expansion of the federal bureaucracy, the extent to which Canadians feel this has done little or anything for their quality of life or the public services that mostly they don't enjoy. I think it's time possibly for a radical de-evolution of federal power, the dismantling of the administrative state in Ottawa and the creation of, in a sense, uh, you know, uh, provincial policy labs that are going to have to figure it out. They're going to have to put on the big boy pants and satisfy for voters who could and should go where the opportunity is. Oh boy, Roger Griffiths, I, when are you running? I will vote for this plan. I, I would just say three quick things in response because I, 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 I couldn't agree more. I mean, first, we really haven't thought systematically about the functioning of our federalism since the Rolls-Cedarwa Commission in the 1930s. Um, you know, it's crazy to me that the city of Toronto has uh, fewer uh, uh, revenue-generating powers at its disposal than the, than the province of Prince Edward Island, which is, you know, roughly the size of my hometown of Thunder Bay. Uh, so I think, yes, a kind of systematic look at our federalism is important. Uh, second, uh, we talked with Amanda Lang last week about how now something approaching 50% of all federal bureaucrats are concentrated in the Ottawa-Gatineau region. Um, so not only is Ottawa growing in absolute terms, it's growing in relative terms uh, with respect to the extent to which it's highly concentrated in a part of the country that I don't think is representative uh, of the country. And I think that contributes to that sense of alienation and distance from Ottawa that you're getting at. The last thing I'll say, uh, another uh, issue we've, we've written and talked a lot about at the hub, that um, one of the great benefits of the, the, the notion of devolution and decentralization you're talking about is it would force aspiring federal politicians to have to self-select in to a national government focused on national issues, right? Like if you're not interested in um, advancing Canada's interests abroad, if you're not interested in um, you know, the functioning of the economic union, no problem. 
run for provincial premier or run for alderman in your municipality. Um, but we, we ought to get to a place where we have uh, what the uh, lawyer Asher Honickman refers to as watertight compartments, where people who want to do provincial and municipal politics should do it, and people who want to do national politics should do it. Um, but we need to get to a place where um, you know we increasingly have 330-ish federal politicians who seemingly, based on the amount of time they spend thinking and talking about provincial and local issues, would, would much rather um, be mayors of their of mid-sized communities across the country. Here, 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 brother Sean, lay it on. Preach, my friend. Um, look, I, this has been a helpful discussion for me because I think I can see a path here where, you know, brokenness maybe is the condition now. We have to accept that. Uh, it's not easy psychologically. It's tough. But if we pair brokenness with some friggin' ambition somewhere to do something big and to acknowledge that we are in a moment where complacency and adjustments at the margin are not going to work. Um, big, bold ideas that are going to shift, uh, yeah, the fundamental pillars of the country in ways maybe that we've not been willing to consider before. Maybe brokenness gets us all collectively to the point where those big ideas start to become a possibility for a new majority government. Okay, Sean, let's take a break. Back on the other side, we're going to talk Davos, what's happening in this rarefied corporate enclave in the high Swiss Alps? Are we finally, finally, please, post-Davos, we'll give you our take back after this break. Hey, Hub Podcast listener, you're just one click away from getting access to all of the Hub's best content. Visit www.thehub.ca for our original journalism, commentary, wine reviews, poetry. We've got it all. The thinking person's one-stop destination for news and information is www.thehub.ca. While you're there, sign up for our complimentary Hub membership. You'll get delivered to your inbox each and every Saturday compilation of our best writing from the previous week again free for you right now at www.thehub.ca welcome back to the hub roundtable Rudy griffiths here the executive director of the hub i've been joined by sean spear our editor-at-large so sean um it's been popping up uh in our news feeds uh the great and the good of uh, Wall Street, um, the uh, secretaries of state, heads of government, um, tech leaders all converging on the Swiss mountain village of Davos for their annual confab. Surprise, surprise, they identified misinformation and disinformation as the number one uh, <laughs> issue facing them. I guess their truth, were, they don't like the fact that maybe the public's having a little bit of choking uh on the truth of davos so they're going to blame misinformation and disinformation for that but i digress i think the real point i want to talk to you about sean is are we finally at a moment where we could say that we're post davos with these coming set of global elections they're going to happen all across the world i think there's over 70 of them seeming populist wave roiling again this is like the second maybe big populist wave in the last decade is this a kind of fin de siècle moment for the Davos set? I think the short answer is yes. Uh, the, the proper critique of, da of Davos and the World Economic Forum has never been its shadowy influence over world affairs. It's always been its kind of 
unseriousness and irrelevance in a way. Um, and I think that has been put on full display over the past week. As you say, um, Donald Trump is the week that Donald Trump overwhelmingly wins the Iowa caucus and positions himself arguably as the front runner to be the next president. You have a bunch of CEOs and, you know, vice presidents and so on sitting around talking about misinformation and, and, and disinformation and watching these kind of arts and cultural uh, displays um, that just seem like, you know, moving furniture on the, on the Titanic in a way. Um, and, and the fact that we don't have a lot of major global leaders, even political leaders that he is attending this year, I think is a sign that one, the world economic forum brand is now kind of politically toxic and two, um, you know, in a lot of ways, just irrelevant from the issues and concerns of or ordinary workers. And if that results in something of a kind of rebalancing of the way we think and talk about politics and way we think and talk about these elite institutions, that's probably a healthy development. Uh, what, what's your sense? Yeah, I'm glad you brought up uh, Trump because I think Davos, in a sense, has become its own worst enemy. It is the apotheses uh, of, you know, elite mostly non-democratic power, you know, concentrated in tech and high finance and other parts of um, our society and the economy that many citizens, people are really understandably angry and anxious about. And it did, it did surprise me that somebody like Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, went to Davos, again, on the very week that Trump was elected. It seems that those politicians who are foolish enough to go are playing right into the hands of their supposed populist opponents. They are framing themselves as courtiers, janissaries to this global corporate class in service of their agendas and interests and not aligned with the interests and ideals of, you know, the citizens who, who elected them. Uh, so I, I, it just, I find it bizarre. I don't know why, those, as you write, less politicians this year, but still significant figures like Anthony Blinken attending this this conference. It seems really counterproductive. Um, I wonder, though, Sean, how you know how it's easy to be very critical of elites, but at the same time, don't we need some forum, some places where you know elite opinion can? gather i mean can you run a society without elites and without elite opinion because that kind of is the fantasy of really hardcore populism that you can do away with all of this and still have uh you know a highly efficient effective and functioning society so i'm always fascinated about that that tension between you know the davos of this world that's kind of supplanted the un in a way the un has become so utterly useless now maybe these People like Blank can go to Davos because that's a place where you can actually get some business done. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? That's a big question. Um, George Will, who you know I'm, I'm a big fan of and someone who's been a past guest on Hub Dialogue, says something like, I'm paraphrasing, the most important task of a, of a democracy is to cultivate and choose um, uh, elites, uh, elites who can, who can lead and, and govern effectively. That, as you say, uh, the question isn't, are we going to have elites? The questions are who the elites are going to be and how do we ensure that they are kind of cultivated in a a set of, of institutions like the modern university um, that gives them the kind of character and 
intellectual formation um, for them to lead well. And I think um, so. I'm I'm personally not. I, I think it's fanciful to think that that there ought to be a world where we don't have elites. I think, or or even that, or even that uh, there's something kind of inherently broken to the meritocracy. I, I happen, you know, the notion of meritocracy is probably one of my strongest political commitments. I think one of the the things that bugs people, of course, is not just the hypocrisy because that, that's sort of like an easy one. It is the extent to which we've experienced over the past couple of decades some pretty extraordinary instances of elite failure, everything from Afghanistan and Iraq to the global financial crisis to uh, um, the West's relationship with China to the to COVID, the COVID response. Precisely. And yet, um, you know, those who oversaw those various failures um, seemingly have suffered no consequence. Um, and in that sense, um, you know, there's a lot not to like about Donald Trump. Uh, Lord knows that's the case. Um, but in a way, he's 60 or 70 million Americans saying, um, you know, we don't want to live in a society where um, where elite failures um, come with no accountability. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if you saw Jamie Dimon's interview on CNBC from Davos. I think he's... To his credit, he kind of struck at the heart of some of those issues and, you know, essentially said um, no, Donald Trump has got a lot of things right. Um, he, he may be chaotic. He may be objectionable in so many ways. Um, but if if elites aren't kind of reckoning with the conditions that led to his rise and the rise of, of others like him, they are completely missing the boat. Davos itself is such a perfect metaphor. It is literally a a heavily kind of armed and fortified village high up in a mountain that in the medieval ages or in the dark ages, that's kind of where, where, uh, human civilization, um, at least those that had food, uh, heating and water retreated to it. It, it to me, it's a kind of, it's just a very, uh, yeah. Davos itself to me is just a representation of a future we don't want. We don't want a future of elites kind of secreted in castles back up on hills, um, recreating some aristocratic, you know, world of noblesse oblige and, you know, feudalism that we left a thousand years ago. My just final kind of contribution to this, you know, beating up on Davos, which I think is well deserved, is that um, it continues. And I think it, it continues as an organization because, you know, elites are interested in, uh, their elite status. And, uh, there's so much of this, which, which I think just goes to the, the heart of like our own human frailty, these ridiculous, you know, Twitter posts of people taking pictures of themselves as they board the plane to go to Davos. The status seeking here is really, I find at times, um, kind of amusing, but look, thanks for uh, kicking around these two big ideas, uh, this week, Sean, really appreciated your time. Hopefully by next week, I will have this frog out of my throat <laughs> and uh you and i will be uh in the sunny uplands of good health and uh, virus free kids bye bye thank you for listening to this edition of the hub roundtable if you've enjoyed what you've just heard come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. 
put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.